And welcome back to the show. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest is a number one New York Times bestselling author who has written one of the most anticipated novels of the year. It's one of the Shadow Hunter Chronicles, the conclusion of the series. We have a chain of thorns. Joining me is the author, Cassandra Clare. And Cassandra, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you? How are things going where you are? <laughs> I'm good other than, um, you know, the uh, we have what is not snow and not rain, but it's called uh, Wintry Mix, I believe, which is my least favorite. Oh, where are you located? Mix. Um, I'm uh, just outside of Boston. Okay, yes, I love a wintry mix. Okay, so you basically get our weather like two days after we did, because yes, we had snow and then it warmed up and you get the lovely wintry mix, which just means slipping and sliding, basically. (laughs) Exactly. So tell us all about um, the new book, and this is the the conclusion of of your trilogy. Is it is it hard to when you turn in this last book to think, oh my gosh, that's it? Yeah, it was kind of a shock. Um, I think uh, it didn't hit me immediately, but you know, I've written I've written multiple trilogies, and when you get to the end of a series, you always have that feeling first of oh, a relief, you know, I've done sure. it, I did it, I, you know, I'm feeling of accomplishment. And then a little bit later, this feeling of sadness creeps in because you think, oh, my God, you know, I've said goodbye to these characters, these situations, this story, you know, and I'm not going to be back again, you know, in that position of writing about them. And it's, uh, it's uh, an adjustment. And, and when you're writing a trilogy, and you've been invested in that for, for several years now, that is a long time to live with the characters to kind of set yourself in that universe do you do you find like what what am i going to do now where where did they go where where do you imagine them going you know in, in the next uh their next step i never try i try never to really imagine what happens to them after the last page of the book is turned yeah. unless i decide to return and write a new story um you know to me they're sort of frozen in amber at that last moment that i've written about um because I want, for me, and, and for the readers as well, for there to feel like there are endless possibilities, yeah. you know? I mean, for what they might do in the future. And it's, it's true, I've been working on this trilogy for almost five years. It's um, been taking me through the whole pandemic. So in many oh, ways, yeah. you know, for there was a long period of time where these, these characters were, and my husband, let's um, not forget him, were the only, <laughs> my only companions. Um, And I guess we should back up just a bit here. Can you briefly share with us um, what we have here in Chain of Thorns? Uh, Absolutely. Um, So Chain of Thorns is part of the uh, the trilogy, The Last Hours. Um, It's one of the Shadowhunter Chronicles, which, you know, span all time periods. And you can can pick up any one of them and and start reading. You don't need to have read them in any particular order. Um, This one is set in 1903. It's the Edwardian era in London, one of my favorite time periods because you still have sort of the romance of Victorian era, but modernism is starting to creep in. You get the first cars, electric lights. Um, There's a whole funny bit in the book where there's a telephone and everybody shouts into it, even though they don't have to, but they just don't understand that you can talk into it and you don't have to, you know, the other person on the other line can hear you. Um, And uh, so uh, it's about a young girl named Cordelia Carstairs comes to London um, and discovers that there is a whole new kind of 
of demon, that, that London is under attack from a new kind of demon. It's one of the sort of tenets in this world that demons only come out at night, but this is a daylight demon, and it, it actually acts um, a little bit like Jack the Ripper. There's sort of these, there are these murders, and they're modeled a little on the Ripper murders, and they start to realize, though, this is not a um, actually, uh, you know, uh, a human. There's a, this is a demon doing this, and they have to solve the mystery. So how much research do you do to, to place yourself and, and place the characters in London in 1903? I do a lot of research. This one was an interesting challenge because of the pandemic. So um, I tend to do about five months of research, and one of the things I like to do is sort of submerge myself in a time period. So I'll only read books, listen to music, watch, you know, movies that are set in that time period so that I feel, you know, that I'm surrounded by it as much as possible. Um, sort of like a language immersion class. Yeah. Um, and I usually go to the place that I'm writing about. So I've written about Los Angeles. I went there. You know, New York. I went there. I've written previous about London. I went there. Now I couldn't go because of the pandemic. So I really discovered the um, interesting sort of length and breadth of research that you can do on the Internet. I mean, it's fortunate that I'm pretty familiar with London and I'd already written a series set there, but... A lot of times, you know, I was trying to figure out how long would it take this character to get from point A to point B, and I would go, you can go on YouTube, and there are people who have filmed themselves making those walks. You can see, you know, sort of what the street looks like, what the environment looks like. Um, There's, um, you know, old maps, things like that. It's really kind of fascinating, uh, the amount of research that you can do. How good is that for you as an author? And I've heard from many to have that, like, tangible connection with the place you're writing about like it's 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 very important and invaluable in your writing i think it's really important i mean i think i try to say that when you're writing supernatural fiction you know because you're asking people to believe in magic and you're asking them to believe in monsters right the people and the places have to seem as real as possible, because you're already asking for a suspension of disbelief. So you want to give them as much reality as possible in the psychology of the characters and the reality of the setting. I appreciate when when people do their research for for books and and TV shows that take place in Chicago, because a lot of people here seem to take that personally, (laughs) like, wait a minute, those streets don't intersect. Yeah, it's... uh, I mean, I, I... read a book that takes place in a place that I know really well or where I grew up and they get something wrong, it does throw me out of the story. So you don't want to do that, you know? I mean, I, you're, if I were reading a book set in Chicago, I mean, I've read many books set in Chicago. I don't, I don't know enough about Chicago to know if they've gotten something wrong. Yeah. But, you know, you have to assume that you're going to have readers who are from that area. Um, and it is... It's something you definitely want to get right, um, especially because, you know, I, I have a ton of readers from, from the U.K., so I go over to London, and I do tours there, and I talk to my readers, and I don't want them yelling at me about having gotten things wrong. Right. <laughs> like, there's three TV shows set in Chicago, and people will just scrutinize them for making a mistake, and I'm like, is that is that a stress <laughs> on producers and authors? I mean, the thing is also, it really, there was, they made a TV show out of Shadow, the Shadowhunters books, um, my first series, The Mortal Instruments, which is set in New York. Yeah. But it's really expensive to film in New York. So most of the time they film in Toronto. Right. So that's an extra challenge, you know, because you're, you're, for New Yorkers, you know, they're sitting there scrutinizing the TV and they're like, that's, you know, that doesn't look like New York. New Yorkers, very picky. 
Um, and I was just reading here, and I always think this is fascinating, that your, your books have been translated into more than 35 languages. Have you ever like taken one of those translations and brought them back into English to see how accurate they get? Well, the only language I speak well enough to do that is French. Okay. So I did take my French translations and try to translate them back into English. And what I find interesting is the way that they have to uh, kind of account for um, slang that doesn't exist in their languages and how they have right. to kind of get around that and, you know, reproduce something that's based on a, that's a joke that's based on a on a word, like I had some joke in the book that was, it was a bunch of, you know, men who were angry about something and one character described it as less of a protest, more of a protest. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and then imagine that you have to translate that into Finnish. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's, it, and I don't know if it takes you out, you'll be reading a book in, in a certain language and then there's like, we don't have a translation for this. We're just going to stick the English word in there and have it stand out. Yeah, I don't know what they did with protested. <laughs> a lot of times I'll get a letter from the translator and then I'll say, I think it's probably best that you just explain it this way. Or they'll say, is this a word in English? And I'm like, not really, but all languages involve wordplay. So I, I respect translators <laughs> immensely. I think it's like incredibly difficult thing to do. The Last Hours Book 3, Chain of Thorns, is now available wherever books are sold. The author is my guest, Cassandra Clare, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And welcome back to the show, and time to get to my next guest. We see shocking statistics on television, in the paper, here on the radio, hearing something that opioid overdose is now the leading cause of death in adults 18 to 45. What's also frightening is every eight minutes, someone dies of an overdose. Here to talk about uh, a new book addressing the issue is Dr. Holly Geyer from the Mayo Clinic. The book is called Ending the Crisis. And Dr. Geyer, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Pleasure to be with you. We hear statistics like that. How do you, as as, as a physician, react just, just hearing some of those raw facts and figures? Oh, it's absolutely disheartening, especially considering all of the interventions that we in the medical field and the federal government and many states have taken since around that 2016 to 2020 timeframe to address the epidemic. Things have only devolved. There was a 30% increase in overdoses in 2020, a 15% increase in overdose rates in 2021. How are these trends going to end unless we make some big interventions that are bigger than our problems? Is the bigger problem, is it just abuse of prescribed drugs, or is it a mix of those and, you know, some of the, the drugs we're, we're getting on the streets? We're seeing a transition. You know, there were studies back in around the 2010 to 2015 timeframe that showed that 80% of people that were hooked on heroin had started with prescription medications. But many states are seeing a transition now to illicit fentanyl and other synthetic drugs that are found on the streets as being one of the first-line things a person encounters to become addicted. So the point of this book is really to empower people with the information necessary to understand the risks, the benefits of opioids, and make informed decisions. So people would 
it'd be a transition. Maybe you had a, a prescription. That prescription would be over, but you're still struggling. So people would look for street drugs. Now you're finding it's the opposite. People are hooked from uh, from fentanyl-laced heroin beginning, uh, beginning from when they're getting those. Many states are seeing that, including in my home state here in Arizona. We are where 50% of all the traffic fentanyl into the United States comes from right now. So oh. we are an absolute hotspot. And yeah, as you can imagine, um, individuals that are obtaining these drugs are really unaware of their toxicities at the beginning. There was a study a few years ago that showed that 42% of all samples fentanyl products that are on the market in one dose have enough to be lethal. So it, there's no surprise that these statistics going up as people are tampering with medications um, with such toxicity levels. How much does it take to overdose? I have seen with fentanyl, it, it is such such a tiny amount. It is. We deal with fentanyl in the medical industry in micrograms. Um, that tiny kind of grain of salt um, territory amount. And when you're receiving these medications off the street, you don't know what you're getting. Synthetic opioids are being product, uh, built over in China as well as trafficked through Mexico um, with various levels of toxicity, with different compounds added in, and different degrees of potency. So it's a grab bag. Um, if you're using them, it's, it's quite dangerous. So we clearly need to find a, a better way to deal with, with these drugs coming in because clearly we're, we're not able to arrest our way out of this. The war on drugs has not proven to be as fruitful as we had hoped back in the 1980s. And I think we're realizing now the power of addiction. One of the things we go into in detail in this book is the biology of what drives addiction, especially related to opioids, and why people make the decisions that they do. The truth is that once we understand that, we can help build better treatment approaches to get them out. And the latter half of this book is built to empower families uh, to make those informed decisions on what to do to help a person get treatment. Understand the disorder, help navigate the insurance industry to get that person into a treatment program, what to look for as signs and symptoms along the way of opioid use to see if someone is maybe developing addictive patterns and then address them through interventions. We want to empower every family member with that resource. What are we doing as far as addiction to opioids and putting the, the street drugs aside? People will have an operation, have an injury, will be prescribed opioids and just find an extremely uh, hard time getting off of that. Is the issue with the way they are prescribed? Is it just the way we are handling it? What, what is the, the major uh, problem we're having with how we're trying to solve this? What a great question. You know, one of the biggest problems I see in America is that we have vilified the drugs. Mm -hmm. The reality is that opioids aren't the enemy. Our misunderstanding of them is. And when we're using opioids in the right patient for the right indication, for the right length of treatment at the right dose, they're one of medicine's greatest marvels. When misused or used outside those parameters and safety nets, they're causing statistics. And so what we tell family members and patients is that you should be able to be equipped with the information before you ever walk into a provider's office with kind of the same knowledge base that that physician is privileged to so you can help make informed decisions in conjunction. The first half of this book prepares people with that info. I just recall the last operation I had in this year years ago, but uh, as I'm recovering, um, it was like a, a, a morphine drip. But then when you're going home, like, well, you can take 
uh, Tylenol. And, and I was fine, but I can see how that would be very difficult for someone to transition off of that to, to a regular over-the-counter uh, painkiller. You know, it's interesting. They've done studies, and 80% of the world's opioids are used in the United States. Think of that. We're only 5% of the world's population. So clearly there's a mindset in America that it's oftentimes the go-to drug class for all pain relief. And I think we need a bit of a mindset change in America. The point of using any drug is to have the benefits outweigh the risk. Yeah. And we know in opioids that balance can be surprisingly hard to achieve. So in this book, we talk a lot about what alternatives really offer people, especially for that acute pain setting and how to use opioids safely by using them in conjunction with non-opioid therapies and targeting functionality as opposed to complete eradication of pain as the target. What are they using outside of, of the United States? Because, you know, we're, we're kind of tend to believe like, oh, well, severe pain that, you know, opioids, that's just the way you deal with it. That's the plan. Yeah. So number one, the mindset change, really understanding that pain serves a purpose in most circumstances. Acute pain is there to protect and to prevent further injury. Um, We need to respect those boundaries that our body provides us. So Americans' work ethic is pretty uh, hardcore. We recognize that. And oftentimes taking a pill and working through the pain is our approach. When in reality, that very approach can lead to a disease called chronic pain. The disease of chronic pain is very different from a biology standpoint, and we need to treat it differently. The data shows that using opioids in that setting more often causes problems than benefits. So trying alternatives to opioids and then setting our own boundaries to let pain perhaps be a warning sign as opposed to a problem can be one way we could approach that. And uh, finally, Dr. Gary, who would who would most benefit from, from picking up this book? Is it written for uh, maybe a caregiver? Is it written for someone who is perhaps struggling? What, who is this written for and what, what's the best way to, to put it to use? This book is for everyone, okay. every household member in America. <laughs> um, the goal is really to do what we do with um, child education on not touching a hot stove, right? I doubt our audience touched a hot stove this morning because they learned very early on in life, if you touch it, you're going to get burned. Right. That's what we want to do with this book is empower people with info so that if they ever encounter an opioid along the course of a treatment plan, they're equipped with the information to use it safely. And the book is called Ending the Crisis, The Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use. It is now available where books are sold. The author is my guest, Dr. Holly Geyer. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. 